Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... I think there's some bigger problems in a society where we have a, a, a surplus of information where disinformation is rife. People need critical literacy skills. We are losing our humanities. We have lost almost a quarter of historians at Australian universities with a concomitant decline in students studying history. It could be that the trend towards revisionist history and a more comfortable, self-identified reality has replaced academic rigour and research. So stay tuned. But first, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese arrived in the US yesterday to begin his official four-day visit. The Prime Minister described his trip to the US as an important visit that comes in a turbulent time. Discussions between the, the Prime Minister... Discussions between the Prime Minister and President Joe Biden are expected to firm up around the AUKUS agreement and supply chain security about critical minerals. David Zhuang asked Jared Monshine, Director of Research at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, what we can expect from this visit. I think there are a number of things that we can expect from this visit. So what we can see is, firstly, just sort of a bolstering and large show of public support and diplomatic support for the alliance. It's been over seven decades along this alliance, and in many ways, it has never in its history been more consequential than it is right now. The value of Australia to the United States is arguably at the highest level ever outside of maybe World War II. And so I think that's why you're seeing the second state visit by Australia to the White House in just a few years, because when back in a few years ago during the Trump administration, you had Scott Morrison going to visit President Trump, and now we have two completely different prime ministers and presidents, and yet not Nonetheless, we see yet another state visit. So I think this is just indicative of just how important this relationship is right now. What kind of topics do you think will mainly be included in the discussion between the Prime Minister and the President? Yeah, so there's a number of things that are of particular importance right now. First, probably AUKUS, the complicated process of sharing nuclear-powered submarine technology with Australia and having nuclear-powered submarines from the U.S. go to Australia and also for Australia to develop its own nuclear-powered submarine. There's a lot of complicated legislation that needs to pass um, in order for that to occur. And um, on one hand, um, you have that. that That's a top priority for the Prime Minister. But, you know, the challenge is obviously the fact that Congress is lax the Speaker of the House, and so but no legislation can really pass right now. Another topic would be critical minerals and supply chain security. So basically looking at the way that the United States and Australia have supply chains around their critical minerals and trying to de-risk them and trying to bolster their own domestic capacity and capacity amongst allies and partners to develop supply chains that are more resilient against economic coercion. So I think AUKUS and uh, supply chain security around critical minerals are, are basically two of the top topics that they will be talking about. So as you mentioned, there's currently a lack of speaker in the U.S. Congress. And um, could you elaborate on that a bit? How do you think the current dysfunction in U.S. Congress will affect the AUKUS deal? Uh, yeah, so AUKUS deal is multi-generational, right? I mean, there are people who have not even been born yet who will be eventually uh, working on nuclear-powered submarines as a part of this 
deal. And so I think right now what we're seeing is just a delay. The, uh, the oldest still functioning democracy in the world is maybe not the most efficiently functioning one, but that doesn't mean that it won't pass. I think there's there's no question about whether there's bipartisan congressional support of AUKUS. The only issues thus far of one, the lack of a speaker, which eventually will be resolved. And two, the domestic issues in the U.S., particularly around industrial capacity and defense industry capacity in the U.S. And and so any any reservations about AUKUS have purely been, uh, or any challenges around AUKUS in the U.S. so far have really only been domestic U.S. issues, particularly around defense industry, um, as well as just political dysfunction in general. How do you think the situation in the Middle East will be talked about in their discussion? Yeah, so a lot of times public officials are accustomed to having sort of to deal with two tracks. On one track are the issues that they want to talk about and that they want to highlight, you know, so they'll go to like a factory opening and want to talk about the the jobs that they're bringing to the region and talk about the, the economic competitiveness and how innovative they are. But on the other hand, you have a media who have their own news cycles that they want to pursue. And so I, I don't think that this visit will be immune from that challenge. And so you might have the, the prime minister and the president wanting to talk about progress on critical minerals, progress on supply chains, progress on, on um, cooperation around AUKUS. But you will also have a press corps, a, a media that will very likely ask them relentlessly about what is happening in the Middle East right now, the impacts of having a crisis there, as well as the voice here, as well as the crisis in Ukraine. And and so they have their own agenda. And that's something that is just going to likely feature prominently in their questions. But that's just the, the, the nature of how the free media operates. What would a prime minister visit mean to Australia and our relationship with the U.S.? From Australia's perspective, the U.S. is the number one security partner, and their alliance with the U.S., as the Prime Minister said, is sort of central to their foreign policy. But it's also a major economic partner. The U.S. is the number one investor into Australia and the number one destination of Australian foreign investment overseas. And they have all sorts of linkages, cultural, economic, military, non-security, that they seem to only be growing every year. And in the age of sort of strategic competition, both leaders, particularly Prime Minister Albanese, will want to see a broadening and deepening of those linkages. And I think this just only highlights that. Jared Monshine, Director of Research at the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, speaking there with David Chuang. Trade Minister Don Farrell has been under fire after he granted a U.S. diplomatic job to a former Labor ally, overriding a decision which selected a highly qualified female candidate for the role. Senator Farrell said Chris Ketter, who was awarded Australia's Consul General and Trade Investment Commissioner in San Francisco in July, had wide experience in government, defence and technology. Talia Kraft asked Dr Peter Chen, Senior Lecturer in Government and International Relations at Sydney University, why a former Labor politician was appointed to the role over a preferred candidate. If you listen to the Minister, the Minister would say that Chris Ketter is an extremely good candidate, has, has a degree in commerce and has a lot of experience that he'll bring to the role. If you listen to the Minister's critics, they'd say that this is job for the boys, uh, factional allies, you know, someone that the Minister came up with through the union movement. It's a bit of a reward for political service well done. Clearly, there's a space for different interpretations of this decision. The 
exact decision, of course, is in the gift of the minister. So the minister has the ability to make these decisions and override the recommendations of their department. So that's not uh, necessarily unusual. There has been a lot of discussion over many years that governments do like to have these political appointments available to them because they are useful politically. Sometimes you can get rid of a, a rival or a former leader or someone like that by appointing them as an ambassador. Other times they can be, you know, a bit of a quid pro quo for service done. But also some of these diplomatic and quasi-diplomatic roles have a political dimension to them. They're not purely technical necessarily. And so sometimes having someone who's got a political understanding quite, can be quite useful. And a good example might be the former treasurer who was appointed during the Trump administration. Clearly, you know, to some degree, it was a, a, a political appointment. Was he, you know, an experienced diplomat? No. But he sort of had a number of personal and other political connections and capabilities that might have made him well suited to this role. Certainly, if we look at the current appointment, we can see why there is some questions being asked, not just in terms of, say, that the preferred candidate was, you know, moved to a different position rather than taking up this role. But also, certainly, if you can compare the new Consul-General with the outgoing Consul-General, Odette Hampton, Odette Hampton appears to be extremely well-suited to the role, particularly San Francisco, right? She's got a background in that kind of start-up area and stuff like that. But also San Francisco, it's a very progressive part of America. Do we necessarily want a more conservative political figure to go there? So you can see why there is a scope for questions, both in terms of, is this a good fit? but also what is the underlying motivation at play here. You touched on uh, Labor's opposition to John Farrellaro's appointment to the trade investment role in New, in New York, and Labor had yeah. promised to rebalance their appointments away from former politicians in preference of qualified senior officials. What do you make of the party's promise in light of this incident? Well, I guess this is one appointment. We'll have to see on the balance of probabilities. I mean, they didn't say they were going to completely do away with, you know, um, uh, political appointments uh, for technical appointments, and this might be, you know, quote-unquote, a one-off. So we're going to have to see how they go over time and their performance in that regard. But you can see how easy it is sometimes to make these kind of commitments in opposition, right? Uh, and we see them in a lot of areas, uh, you know, Freedom of Information Act, uh, not using commercial incompetence arrangements, being more open and transparent. Um, these are often things that opposition uh, like to talk about. Um, they're less likely to deliver on them unless, unless there is a lot of public opinion that backs it up. And obviously we can think about the National Anti-Corruption Body as an example of something that the Labor Party really committed to and campaigned on. And even if there were doubters within the party, once they came into government, in a sense, they had to uh, they had to make good on that. Whereas some of these other commitments, you know, um, they uh, will see whether they actually hold through uh, in the, over the life of the government. Um, and uh, you know, uh, clearly, when we think of parties like the Labor Party, which has a very strong, well-developed factional system, um, the factional system has its own politics. It has its own uh, logics. There, there's you know a little bit of a quid pro quo that does occur in that regard. Uh, and that sometimes does come to the surface in terms of some of these appointments. I'm not sure if that's the case in this regard, so I wouldn't want to say that, but um, certainly you can see why people are asking questions. About in the case of John Barrow-Laro, of course, it ended up before New South Wales ICAC. Do you think there will be any anything that comes out of this appointment? Yeah, it will be interesting to see if the, um, if the federal opposition attempted to utilise 
the new federal anti-corruption body in this regard. Um, certainly, uh, there is a slight difference, right, um, at least ostensibly at the moment in terms of the way the process has played out, so there might not be grounds for that. Um, but partly that pursuit of uh, Bellaro, um South Wales uh, was driven partially by the degree to which that became a public issue that people were really concerned about that the media campaigned on. And so I guess the question is, is um, this appointment, these individuals, do they have the same sort of status? That means that this will become an issue. Only time really will tell, I think. Um, if it isn't really pursued, it, it won't go that far. And certainly we haven't seen the opposition parties outside of, uh, you know, sorry, the crossbench parties um, pursuing this so far. So we're going to have to wait and see on that. Dr Peter Chen, Senior Lecturer in Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney, speaking there with Talia Kreft. As part of the Indigenous Innovation Challenge Program at Monash University, Indigenous-led organisations from all around Australia were invited to submit ideas to increase Indigenous-led land, sea and water remediation, native fruit offtake, improve manufacturing capabilities and preserve native plant biodiversity. Five organisations pitched their ideas to Monash University faculty members and were then given the opportunity to workshop with them. Rodney Monk asked Program Lead, Associate Dean Professor Chris Lawrence from the Faculty of Information Technology at Monash University, what occurred yesterday at the unique Indigenous Innovation Challenge workshop. The National Indigenous Innovation Challenge was about bringing Indigenous communities, entrepreneurs, business people to Monash University to pitch their concepts, proposals to the faculties that were involved. So the Faculty of Information Technology, Faculty of Engineering, Science, Business and Law. And the reason um, that they we, we combined all these efforts was to really have a holistic kind of wraparound package for these kind of entrepreneurs and um, startups. So they would they came and they pitched their idea in the morning. You know, just tell us straight up front what their ideas were. Then we listened and then we allocated them Monash University experts from those faculties. So we broke them up into teams and then they had to go and the breakouts. And so they had to work closely with the Monash um, expertise to fine-tune and polish their proposal. And how did that go? <laughs> it was really... Because... You know, they came in fresh off the plane and they got up and they presented their ideas. And then the Monash team said, well, hang on, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you, what about doing it this way? Some of the challenges and all the other things that they hadn't thought about. And so, of course, it changed. They came back in the afternoon. It was totally different pictures. So the Monash team got up with the participants because they're a team now. And so they'll work together. And so they all came back together and they all came back and they pitched the second pitch after all the updates that they'd made to their proposal. So they considered and they took on board everything that the Monash experts provided. And so now they've got a whole different perspective of how they're going to do their proposals. And so we allocated seed funding to each of the projects, actually. So was that $30,000? Thirty thousand dollars for the top three, and uh-huh. twenty thousand dollars for the others, because some of them were at a, at a stage where they were much more kind of marketable um, and and commercial. But point where they just needed that injection to get across the line, where we feel that they've really got a good business concept, and we just wanted to, you know, we can help them polish that up, introduce them to industry and government partners, 
you know, help them bring students in and get their um, proposal where they really want it to be, where it's at that point that they've got all this expertise. That you know, that would cost money. In every day out there, startup entrepreneurs usually, uh, if they don't have that kind of investment, they're not going to really um, succeed. And we know that they fall over. And especially for a lot of Indigenous uh, businesses like these, they don't have those resources um, because they cost money. Is there an issue with finding capital? That, that is part of it. I think that's a big part of it. It's also about the other things around developing a really strong business case and going to, to gain that um, um, capital investment. And that was part of what our initiative is about. That's why we brought the business faculty and law in and obviously to, to really help create really strong business cases and proposals. So the idea is that we will build these up to the point where we can get them in front of investors and in front of those industry and government partners to explore investment opportunities. That's really what this um, National Indigenous Innovation Challenge is about. Right. And we'll be doing this every year. So this was oh. the inaugural first time we ran it. And this is the other thing I want to make clear, um, which is really vital. Universities don't often do this, right? No. They engage in communities to do research, right? And they you know, do publications and all those other things. And they do have generators and things like that. And, 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 but I said, no, well, where's the Indigenous um, you know, generators and, and, and innovation um, support here? And we needed to target it. So the light switched on for us. And so as a Faculty of Information Technology, we led the whole team because it was, it was our idea, it was my idea, um, that, I, that I thought, well, you know, we're rather than we give the money to our staff to go off and do kind of, you know, research projects and write publications, and no one really reads those, is, well, well, why don't we give the money to a community? In my Faculty of Information Technology, there's only five Indigenous students out of 5,000. So, obviously, there's a purpose for me to promote... Increase those numbers. Um, yeah, and also to show Indigenous students there is a future for them, Indigenous futures in information technology. Because a lot of them think, oh, I've got to go and do medicine, I've got to go and do law, I've got to go and be a social worker, I've got to do all these other things that are important in our community because of all those social issues and health issues, but not realising that some of them are actually technologists and designers, scientists or mathematicians or engineers. And, but they're not following their real passion or their real interest. So this is where we want to switch this around and change the narrative because our people, Indigenous Australians, are the first scientists, technologists, engineers, architects, mathematicians and medicine people. And if anybody can pick up a piece of wood and throw it, make it come back, they've got to be innovators. <laughs> so it's in our DNA. Associate Dean Professor Christopher Lawrence from the Faculty of Information Technology at Monash University and proud Wajuk Baladong Noongar man speaking there with Rodney Monk. A new report highlights the crisis of the humanities in Australian universities with a 23% reduction in the number of historians in our universities. Stephen Hill talked to Martin Crotty, Associate Professor of History at the University of Queensland, about the decline in students majoring in history and the impact of university staff cuts. It's been a fairly long decline for history in Australia. We're particularly alarmed because the decline appears to have sped up in recent years with the events surrounding COVID and the university cost-cutting that took place and also the introduction of the Job Ready Graduates Package in 2020. 
But what we've seen ever since has been a fairly long and slow erosion. And we think this has happened for three principal reasons. The first is the corporatised university, which tries to maximise income and which focuses very heavily on disciplines which will bring in research dollars and bring in overseas students. There's been a long pattern of hostility to the humanities from conservative governments and conservative media. And if you recall all of the imbroglio around black armband history in the late 90s and early 2000s, And while we were still battling with the pandemic, of course, the Morrison government came out with the Job Ready Graduates Package, which dramatically increased the fees for humanities students. So we're seeing a decline in student numbers and a decline in staff numbers, and we think this is pretty alarming. So part of this you, you talk about is the fact that a lot of research dollars is actually focused on international students, and a lot of international students are rolling in engineering, in, in, in STEM subjects. Essentially, yes. Humanities subjects are fairly thinly funded in any case, so they've always found it hard to support themselves, and they tend to need some cross-subsidisation. The story with overseas students is really that the government doesn't fund universities sufficiently to do their teaching. And so universities attract overseas students and use the fee income from overseas students to subsidise their internal operations. But in the politics of a university, if a whole lot of students are coming to study engineering or IT, for example, from overseas, then those dollars don't really make their way to the humanities. What we found was that the number of students enrolled in Australian history courses has gone down by over 20% since 2016 in Australia. And if you look at the New Zealand figures, the numbers there have gone down by about 10% over the same time. The only difference that we can see is that New Zealand didn't bring in the Jobs Ready Graduate Package. It would appear to us that the Job Ready Graduates Package was essentially designed to steer students away from studying the humanities. So so what is the impact culturally on the lack of historians in academic employment? I, I just went past a bus and it was advertising the new Martin Scorsese film called The Killers of Flower Moon. And this is actually based on an, a, a non-fiction book about mm. Sange Indians. Are these the sort of works that, if there's a shortage of historians, that you know, the interesting cultural works we've encountered the last 50 years, will, will there be a reduction of quality? Yeah, I, I think it has all sorts of problems. I mean, if you, if you think back on some of the great Australian movies, you could think of things like Ten Canoes or Tracker or Muriel's Wedding or Gallipoli. These resonate because people have a broader understanding of the issues and the cultures those movies are making references to. But I think there's so bigger problems in a society where we have a, a, a surplus of information where disinformation is rife. People need critical literacy skills. There was a time, of course, where access to information was the difficulty. Now, that is certainly not a problem. There is so much information out there. So nonsense flourishes when good, reliable knowledge is undermined. While there's a lot of erudite work, major historical writers we, we probably know, suppose like Manning Clark, Eric Hobson. So I'm assuming there's also a lot of grunt work that goes in with you know, dealing with archives and testimony. And I get to read the books, you know, I might attend a lecture. But what about mm-hmm. all the, sort of the, the, the stuff that the public doesn't access? Yeah, I think you're right. The historians are the ones in the engine room who are actually doing the research. And they might not always be very good at popularising their research, but it does filter through. And it filters through, for example, in radio interviews. It filters through in documentaries. But you have to have someone there to actually work out what happened. I think, for example, that Tom Griffiths has done considerable work around the history of bushfires in Australia. 
which might not be an area that people would think of when they think of historical work in Australia. But people such as Tom Griffiths have looked at the history of institutional responses to fire and were instrumental in having Victoria's policy about how you behave in a bushfire changed. So what does it mean for students? I think it's impoverishing for students because the students that I encounter at the moment are often wondering what the hell is going on with the world. And I think that one thing that we can do as historians is to show that disruption is normal. COVID was unique. Climate change is an unprecedented problem. But we've always had problems. We've always had to make adjustments. We've always had to change and to reinvent ourselves. And I think that gives young people a fair bit of encouragement and faith. Dr Martin Crotty, Associate Professor of History at the University of Queensland, speaking there to Stephen Hill. Southwest Sydney's thriving wild koala population is facing a precarious future as urban development encroaches on their habitat corridors. Extensive housing developments are threatening to diminish these crucial links, jeopardising the koala's ability to thrive and reproduce. Francis Dew has this story. Sydney's southwest is home to around 300 koalas, but large-scale urban developments have led to the loss of vital koala habitats, threatening the state's only chlamydia-free colony with its extinction. We're now on Appen Road, Campbelltown, where Wires Wildlife Rescue Group reports 30 koalas were lost to car strikes alone in the past year. Shreyla Sledge is a koala officer for Greater Sydney's Landcare. She says overdevelopment in vital koala habitats are forcing them to move south where chlamydia is prevalent. Naturally the koalas are wanting to expand to find new, new habitat, new food, new mates, that sort of thing. And the Fig Tree Hill is being built right in smack the middle of a koala corridor and other wildlife corridor where they're wanting to naturally move from the east to the west. So, um, yeah, you can imagine a big... A uh, big development coming right in the middle of like where the wildlife have been travelling for years and years and years, you know, is obviously becoming a huge obstacle for them. Um, and it's actually forcing them to move south, which is where we know we have chlamydia. It's really, it, it's, a, it's a massive issue, you know, because we're losing animals on the road, but we're also going to have a big, you know, biosecurity issue yeah. if um, the only way they can go is south and they meet up with more chlamydia. Emma Meadows is a full-time koala rehabilitator, providing intensive care and round-the-clock attention to koalas in the region. It's her job to ensure the koalas stay disease-free and thrive in Campbelltown. Every day is different. Last weekend, I spent 12 hours, actually probably more than 12 hours. I got called out to rescue um, 10 o'clock Sunday morning for a koala that had been hit by a car on Picton Road. Um, unfortunately it was up the top of the tree so I needed assistance, we called in a tree climber by the time I left I had to get the emergency vet was out at Prospect so that was another hour or more drive by the time I left Prospect I got back to Appen probably about 6.30, 7 o'clock at night for another koala call out here in Appen um, on top of that I'm feeding joeys as well so trying to schedule feeds in between that Campbelltown, a region with a rich history of koalas was once their sanctuary after near extinction due to the fur trade, koalas found a haven here again in the 1980s. Most locals have said that they've been seeing koalas in the area for 20 years. Les Sheeram, an expert wildlife tracker, often takes members of the community on guided tours around Smith's Creek Reserve to spot koalas and other native wildlife. Just this week, he spotted three. 
uh, in this reserve, I've documented 20, but uh, the whole of Camel Down is probably about, uh, I think they, they reckon 300. I reckon more, because, you know, they, they're just going on the sightings. So I, I, I asked an expert how many koalas are in this reserve a year ago. And she told me 12 to 15 koalas, and she's an expert, but she doesn't come in here every day. Okay, so I come in here most days. I'm looking for koalas, and so far I've uh, documented 21 koalas. Greg Warren, the member for Campbelltown, says there needs to be a balance between urban development and making sure that we do prioritise the sustainability of koala habitats. When we are having urban development, which, you know, we need houses and we want to see that supply to ensure uh, that, 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 you know, young families can get into the housing market and, and we don't see uh, matters of affordability um, continue to skyrocket. But we must also have a priority of making sure when we do develop um, urban growth areas, we do so in a manner that prioritises the preservation of habitat and the saviour of our koalas. In response to the concerns around protecting koala habitats in New South Wales, the Labor government earlier this year announced initiatives including the establishment of the Georges River Koala National Park. We recently announced the Georges River Koala National Park, which means none of those specific areas of land that are sensitive to koala colonies can get developed. We also have prioritised measures as part of the conditions of consent for the growing areas to have provisions in place that provide crossings, uh, underpasses, overpasses or whatever else is needed to ensure that when koalas do move around, they're limited as a risk to getting hit by a car. We also just funded uh, the hospital, Koala Care Hospital, uh, at Brownlow Hill that was actually closed up until March this year. It's now reopened um, with funding of $5.7 million to provide certainty for the next four years. Greg Warren, New South Wales MP for Campbelltown, ending that report by Francis Du. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the Community Radio Network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.